On a Sunday in 1732, David Nitchman and Jonathan Dober heard their pastor talk about an island in the West Indies with slaves. And the owner of these slaves was an atheist. And he refused to allow any preacher or pastor or missionary set foot on his island. Jonathan and David went home that day thinking about these slaves, these human beings made in the image of God who would never get to hear the good news of God's grace. They would never get to hear the gospel, and it weighed upon their heart. They continued to think about them, and they finally developed a plan of how they could bring the gospel to these slaves. And their plan was, since this atheist owner wouldn't let any pastor or preacher or missionary onto his island, their plan was to sell themselves into slavery so that they could bring the gospel to these people. This wasn't a short-term missions trip. This was their life. When their family and friends had heard of their plan, they tried to convince them to stop. They said this was insanity. Do you know you're just throwing away your life? But they would not be deterred. And on the day that they left, as their ship was selling out, one of them, the witnesses aren't sure which one, but one of them raised their fist and yelled out, May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of His suffering. What an amazing statement by people who were committed to the Gospel. They realized that in Ephesians 1, during the, Paul's prayer, when he says that we are His inheritance, they realized that we are the reward of His suffering. That Christ suffered not a pointless death, but a death for you and for me. We are the reward for His suffering and motivated by the Gospel of God's grace that Christ would receive the reward for His suffering, they sold themselves into slavery. We can look out throughout the history of Christianity and we can see story after story that is similar. We see the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 8. Who as he is being stoned to death, as the Israelites are picking up stones to throw at him as he is being pelted with stones. He prays for them. What motivates him? It is the gospel of God's grace. As we continue to hear story after story of saints like Polycarp, who was burned at the stake for the sake of the gospel. What motivated him? We read story after story, and it all turns out the same motivation. Some people would look at him and say, you're wasting your life. 
You're throwing it away. But all of these martyrs, all of these people who have lived for the gospel see something bigger and far better than this life. They recognize the eternal life that God has offered to each and every one of us. And they are living for something more than just this temporary satisfaction that we can have right now. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our series Better Together and we examine Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. So if you will, turn with me to Ephesians 3. We'll read through it and then we'll kind of examine it a little bit closer. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is an interesting section of Ephesians. He is just... He walked us through some really great theological truths in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, he lays out all of the blessings that that we have in Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, he, he lets us know that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not just some, it's not just part partial spiritual blessings, it's every, it's all spiritual blessings have been bestowed upon us. And then he walks through chapter 2 how God has saved us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. We were living in rebellion. We couldn't save ourselves, and yet because God loves us with such a great love, He paid the price. For grace you have been saved. And then he gets into how this salvation doesn't just affect our relationship with God, but affects our relationship with each other. And he talks about how he has reconciled us all into one body, how God is uniting all things in Christ, including the wrecked relationships we have with each other, so that we can have good relationships. We have perfect, perfectly restored relationships with one another. This is so important to understand that reconciliation can happen. Reconciliation is possible. For those of you who have struggled with relationships, some of us have parents who have let us down over and over again, parents that we want to shake our fist at and hate. God can reconcile that relationship. 
Some of you are in marriages that are struggling right now and you don't know how you're going to make it. God can reconcile that relationship. So God is in the process of reconciling all things in unity to Him. And that includes our relationship. And He concludes that section and then He says, for this reason... And, and most theologians think that, he, that this introduction was to be a, for the prayer. We're going to catch up with the prayer next week in verse 14, where we're going to see that for this reason, because of God's great grace, because God is reconciling these relationships, because he's making all things new in him again, then Paul's going to pray. But, but he introduces it, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and he gets sidetracked. He goes in a digression that, that's going to be, actually, it's only going to be four sentences. So this whole section that I just read is only four sentences in the Greek. And so it's this introduction that I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on, on behalf of you Gentiles, that's where he starts to get sidetracked. That's where he starts to go off the rails. Because he realizes what he's describing. And he doesn't want them to, to lose heart over him being a prisoner on their behalf. He wants them to realize this isn't a guilt trip. Sometimes we get caught up in guilt trips. Sometimes we know people that love to guilt trip us, right? And they'll throw in like, oh yeah, I'm a prisoner on your behalf, so now you've got to do all this stuff for me. That's not what Paul's doing. And he realizes that they might think, that they might think he is trying to guilt trip them into doing, into being motivated. And he wants to say, no, 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 that's not it at all. So he wants to explain this is not a guilt trip. I'm throwing this, this idea in here that I'm a prisoner of Christ on your behalf. It's not a guilt trip, but let, let, me, let me explain it to you. So he's going to explain it in three more sentences. But first, let's dig into this. For this reason, the reason is that God has provided his grace for us all and is reconciling all things in unity to himself. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now we know historically that, that he wasn't a prisoner of Christ. You know, it wasn't Christ that put him in shackles. We know that it was the Romans, and if we read through, and actually it was the Jews who then turned him over to the Romans, if we read in Acts 20 all the way through 22, that Paul is out and he's sharing the gospel, and on his third missionary journey, he goes through what is now Turkey and Greece, it was uh, Asia back then, and he's sharing the gospel, and, and what he would do is he'd walk into a synagogue and he'd share the gospel with the Jews, until they had rejected him and kicked him out. And then he'd go to the Gentiles and he'd share the gospel with them. And in fact, he spent two years in Ephesus sharing the gospel, so much so that that it says everyone who lived in that region had heard the gospel. Not everyone had come to know Christ, but everyone had heard the gospel. Imagine how God was working through Paul in that ministry that every single person in that region had heard the gospel. So he continues going through. There's a riot in Ephesus. He has to leave. And eventually he decides to make his way back to Jerusalem for a couple different purposes. One is the church in Jerusalem was struggling financially and he had collected uh, some funds for them to help them out. So he needed to go back to give them some funding. But also he had made a vow. And he needed to go back to the temple to complete this vow. So he starts heading back to Jerusalem, and the whole time he's going back to Jerusalem, there are people that are warning him. People that the the Spirit of God is revealing to Paul what's going to happen. And he knows that when he gets back to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to bind him and turn him over to the Romans. 
He knows he's going to be in chains. And yet he also knows that this is his assignment from God. And so he continues to travel to Jerusalem. And when he makes it to Jerusalem, the word is out. And he's warned even. Here's what's going to happen. Because they keep hearing, these Jews keep hearing that you are denying Moses. Now that's not actually what happened. Paul wasn't denying Moses. And he wasn't denying the law. He was saying that Christ had fulfilled the law. But rumors had spread. Rumors that Paul was anti-Jewish. And wasn't true at all. Paul was a Jew. At the time, he he is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Paul does not hate the Jews. He loves the Jews. So much so that he was going to the synagogue to preach the gospel to them. But that was the rumor. And so when he goes to the temple, there's an uproar. There was actually a riot and they arrest him, and they turn him over to the Romans. But it is because he was being compelled by Christ. It is Christ who compelled him to preach the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles. He had an assignment. Now, Paul would have actually much rather stayed with the Jews. That's who he was comfortable with. That's what he grew up with. But God gave him an assignment to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So it is the assignment that Christ had given him that ended up putting him in chains. And so that's why he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because he, it was his assignment that ends up putting him in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's a reference to why he's in prison. It's not just that he was preaching the gospel. If he only preached the gospel to the Jews, he would have never been put in prison. In fact, there were thousands in Acts 21, it states that there were thousands of Christian Jews living in Jerusalem. And they were getting along with the non-Christian Jews just fine. So what was the problem? Why did they hate Paul so much? It's because he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he is in prison, not because of the gospel necessarily, but because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he says, on on behalf of you Gentiles. He's in prison on behalf of us. And that's what starts the digression. So he's like, I'm not trying to guilt trip you here. Let me explain myself a little bit more. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So this, uh, this uh, assuming, the way he's written this, forces a yes, they have heard it. Uh, in the Greek, it's very clear. He's assuming, he, ha- he knows that they know it. But he's writing this to remind them. So he's kind of saying like, hey, I'm reminding you guys of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It's important for us to kind of take a principle out of here saying that we need to remind ourselves of God's truth all the time too. It is so easy for us to forget God's grace. It is so easy for us to slip back into legalism. Legalism is this idea that we can earn our own righteousness. If I just do the right things at the right time, I can be more righteous than you. That's the idea of legalism. And it always pits each other against each other, right? It always pits us against each other. Because we're trying to measure who's more righteous than who. 
And if we're not careful, we'll forget God's grace. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to meet together as a church, to remind each other of God's grace. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to continually read the Bible. Because if we're not in God's Word, if we're not reminding ourselves of God's grace, we will forget it. And we'll slip back into legalism. So that's what he's doing here. He's reminding them that they have heard of the stewardship. The word stewardship here, the Greek is uh, oikonomia, and it means like a management system. It's, the, it's where we get our word economy from. We're going to run into it a couple times here, but let's keep in mind that this is the economy of God's grace. So how God is managing His grace towards the Gentiles, and not just towards the Gentiles, but towards all of humanity. Paul is given this stewardship, this management. He's given something bigger than himself. He's got to live for something bigger than himself. His assignment, he knows, is bigger than his own life. It is very easy for us Americans to get caught up in the temporary comforts of the world. We see interest rates rising, and we're like, how on earth am I going to afford my house? There's no way I can... There's no way I can get a HELOC and put in that addition that I've always wanted. What about my next car? Uh, our car, the door just recently quit opening for Harper's side. And Jen and I were kind of playing around with this idea of like, well, maybe we should buy a new car. Or maybe we could, you know, save that money and invest it in something else. But we constantly come up with these, and we're distracted what about my next vacation? How about that bike that I've been eyeing? You know, I downgraded to a, a hardtail. A full suspension would be nice again. I, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in these distractions, isn't it? And part of that is because we're not reminding each other that there is something bigger than the comforts of this world to live for. There is something that is eternal that we can live for. I like to say that we can live for the long game. And there's a lot of investments that are kind of long game ideas. So when I bought my first house, uh, it was in 2006. So those of you who are my age know what's coming in 2008, right? But in 2006, I bought my first house. My wife at the time was working for Frontier Airlines. I was working for the University of Colorado. We bought this house, and it was well below, the mortgage payment plus everything else was well below that 30%, which you're looking for, you know, the 30%. We're closer to like 15%. In fact, we were making so much money that when I got offered a job as a youth pastor, which was a significant pay cut, I could take it and would still be below that 30%. And we we're like, sweet. I can take that job as a youth pastor. We'll lose out on some money. But we feel like that's what God's calling me to. Three months later, she died in a car accident. All of a sudden, this house payment that was well below 30% became over 50%. And then the crash of 2008 hit. And this house that now I was drowning in was not just worthless, but I was well under on it. That house lost almost $100,000 in a matter of months. 
And man, I'll tell you, I wanted to walk away from that house. I was like, there's no way this is worth it. I can just walk away. It'll be a ding on, on my credit score, but I'm okay with that. There's no way I can afford this. But one of my mentors said, Aaron, when you signed that paperwork, you made a promise. And I want you to live up to that promise. So I, you know, at that church we had a free bin of uh, food. So like they hosted a lot of events and all the like leftovers would get put in that free bin. That's what I ate. Uh, I ate out of a free bin. Or, you know, there were a lot of gracious people that would invite me over for dinner. So, so I, I survived like that. And then Jen and I got married. And that's how we survived even longer. And about five years later, so in about, I think it was 2013, we finally could sell the house. And we ended up making a pretty significant profit off of it. And what I learned from that whole situation was that real estate was a long game. You don't buy a house looking for a quick investment. You buy a house, you buy property looking down, years down the road. And some of us are even faced with that right now with interest rates and all that rising, right? It's just a temporary thing. As permanent as a house feels, it's still only temporary compared to the investment we make with the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate long-term investment. Now that might mean that there are times when it feels like you're upside down like, you did, like I did on my house, right? There are times when it feels like you're not even making any headway. But it's a lifelong investment. And so there are some relationships that God has called you to where it feels like you're just beating your head against a brick wall every day. But as long as you are obeying God and being faithful in the assignment, then the investment is worth it. You have no clue what God is going to do when you invest in the gospel. You have no clue what kind of impact, what kind of eternal impact you're going to make. And it may not feel like it at all during this lifetime. There's a story of a man in Australia who his entire life, he stayed on one corner and he handed out tracts. I shouldn't say his entire life. It was only 20 years. That wasn't his entire life. But still, a long time. He handed out gospel tracts in this one corner. Day after day. Never knowing what kind of impact he was making. In fact, oftentimes it didn't feel like he was making any impact. But at his funeral, the church filled up with hundreds of people who came to know Christ because he was faithful to his assignment. You have no clue what God is going to do when you are faithful to the assignment he has given you. And it's a long-term investment. Don't look at the short term. Look at the long term. What has God called you to? So if you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So he's already written a little bit about this, uh, but we, we can trace it back if we turn all the way back to Acts 9. We see that Paul was actually persecuting the church. Paul was a murderer of, of Stephen. He, he actually was murdering people in the church. The church was very fearful of Paul. 
And then God got a hold of his heart. And it changed him. And then he actually brings Paul out into the wilderness for three years, and he trains him in the gospel. So when Paul says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, that's what he literally means. That, God, that Christ took him into the wilderness, and he revealed this mystery to him personally. When you read this, sorry, uh, let me back up, as I have written briefly. So we saw in chapter 1 that he, he explains a little bit of the mystery that God is reconciling all things to himself. That's part of the mystery. And then in chapter 2, we see an even, more, an even greater emphasis that God is reconciling all of us. That all of us are equal in God's eyes. And that he has made a relationship with him possible. That's the mystery. And so, we'll continue on. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So the Old Testament revealed that Israel uh, was going to bless, that God was going to bless the rest of the nations through Israel, but they weren't entirely sure. So then he continues, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what he's saying here is, in the Old Testament, we knew that God was going to bless the nations through Israel. We knew it, but we didn't know exactly how. The mystery is now being revealed on how God is going to bless the nations through Israel. And that's summed up in chapters 1 and chapters 2. We see it very clearly, right? And then he goes on, uh, has been revealed, so this mystery has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So this term holy modifies both the apostles and prophets. And so there's a little bit of question here. Some people think that it's like two offices, Uh, so the office of apostle, and some people would say it's the office of of prophet. Others try to argue that it's uh, one, uh, because holy modifies them both, that it's one office, apostle slash prophet, and that it it has two different functions in that one office. Uh, I I think it's kind of an argument that we don't need to get into, because either way, the point is that the Spirit was inspiring the writing of the New Testament. That's the point that he's trying to make here when we read, uh, revealed to us holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the idea here is that the Spirit was revealing this to the apostles and the prophets. The Spirit was inspiring these apostles and prophets to write up the New Testament. It's so important for us to grasp this because the Bible that we're holding isn't just written by men who are historians. Although there is history, it's not just a history book. It's not just written by men with a a, a philosophy that they want to share. Although there is philosophy in this book. It was actually inspired by God to reveal biblical or his principles to this world. So if you want to know what God thinks... If you want to know what God has revealed to us, we find it in Scripture. That's what he's saying here. Then he's going to describe what the mystery is in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we see in chapter 1 that the mystery was God was reconciling all things to himself. In chapter 2, he really nails it down that, it's, that it is uh, Jews and Gentiles are equal with each other. 
that there is no one special group of people that's more righteous and holy than the other. And here he just lays that out again very clearly for us. That we are all equal in Christ. The very worst of sinners. The person who was shooting up last night who has used and abused people but put their faith and trust in Christ this morning is just as much of a saint as the missionary working out in the mission field. In God's eyes, He has made us holy. He has made us righteous. We as humans tend to be legalistic and we want to divide. We want to say that we're more holy than they are. And it's just not true. God has made you holy, no matter how horrible you've been. That's the mystery. So that's the first first two sentences. 7 through 12 is going to be the next sentence. So the first one gives us, he explains the mystery. 7 through 12 is going to explain how God is revealing that mystery or how God is letting that mystery come and infiltrate the world. And then 13 is going to be a word of encouragement. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So this word minister here, sometimes we get this idea that like it's the minister's job, you know, uh, that, that the minister is the paid person, so let's let the minister do it. Uh, but this word minister is actually in the Greek, it's, uh, it means deacon. So it's where we get our word deacon from, and it, it really means servant. So we could read it of this gospel. So it is the gospel. The gospel is very simply that we were all sinners, that we were destined for hell. But because God loves us with such a great love that he came and he died on the cross for us, so that when we put our faith and trust in him, we can have a perfect, reconciled relationship with God and are destined for heaven. So is this gospel, I was made a servant of. So Paul is a servant of the gospel. It's not that he lords the gospel over, that he is the one with the super special knowledge that everyone needs to turn to. It's not a top-down leadership model. It is if you are a leader, you are a servant. That is what he is explaining. A servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. It is by God's grace that he was a servant of the gospel. He didn't see it as a burden. He saw it as a privilege. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. So Paul calls himself the very least of all the saints, once again, because he was murdering the saints. He was persecuting Christians. And for this reason, he thought of himself as lower than others. And yet, we know that he was made just as righteous as all the others. But he didn't want people to think that because he was this missionary, that he was somehow better. God got a hold of his heart and changed him. No matter how horrible you have been in your life, 
God hasn't given up on you yet. No matter how much rebellion you've been in, no matter what you have done, God can change your heart. If God changed Paul's heart, God can change your heart as well. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So a few weeks ago, we ran into a word that was immeasurable. We we looked at how uh, Paul described God's power as immeasurably great. And we got this idea that, that you just couldn't measure it out. There was no amount of kilowatts, no measuring tape, no scale that could measure the power of God. And here we run into a similar word, unsearchable. Some of your translations will say unfathomable. Just think about how you can't even comprehend, right? So Paul is, is given, this idea, given this assignment that he is to describe to the world something that is almost indescribable. And so you can see him trying to reach for words on how do we describe the unsearchable, unfathomable wealth of God. You can't. We can't fully comprehend it. And he goes on, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So we've got this idea. He's like, I'm supposed to talk about God's immeasurable greatness, His immeasurable great power, and I'm supposed to talk about His unsearchable riches, these things that we can't even fathom, that we can't wrap our minds about. But not just that, but I'm supposed to bring it to light for everyone. I'm supposed to bring it forth. I'm supposed to like let you understand, help you to try to figure out what is God's plan of the mystery. This term plan, it's back to that oikonomia. So it's God's management of the mystery. So he's been given this assignment to help us understand something that we can't even describe. And his first step is that he's going to reveal the economy of the mystery. He's going to reveal how God is managing the grace that he is bringing forth. And he does this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So as he reveals this management of God's grace to us, then the church takes that, and when we live out the biblical principles that we find, when we live these biblical principles out as a Christian community, then God reveals His wisdom not to us, but through us. So the rest of the world can look at the church, and say, what on earth is going on in there? Where every other group, you see division, and you see them devouring each other. Where every other group, you see that it's all about how can I use you to get to the top? How can I use you to get mine? The church should be a place where we see servanthood, where we see grace given and offered, 
And as the world looks on, they say, wait, what is going on here? Christian has been teaching a a church history class. I would encourage you to go. It's not too late to go, but that's one of the things that we learn with the first church, with the early church. They weren't in power. They weren't the majority. In fact, they were being persecuted. They were being killed. And yet Romans continued to look at them and say, wait a second, what's going on here? We kill you guys and yet you have joy. And we see that still throughout this world. We experience a lot of privilege as the American Christian church, privilege that most Christians throughout the history of Christianity have not yet to experience, including Christians, the majority of Christians that live in the world today. The majority of Christians that live in the world today are living in persecution, and what's amazing is that as they live in persecution, and yet they still come together and share God's grace with each other, and and build each other up, and live in the joy and peace that God gives us, others look on and they're like, whoa, what's going on? And as a result, oftentimes in the most persecuted areas, we see the church growing the fastest. But we can get carried away with the distractions. And we can get carried away with petty fights. And we can get carried away about our own egos. And we can start puffing ourselves up, making the gospel really all about me. And when we do that, the world does not see, or I should say, God does not reveal His manifold wisdom through us. In order to have the manifold wisdom of God be revealed through us, we have to be living out biblical principles. When you get in a disagreement with someone in the church, you don't turn around and gossip and slander. The biblical principle is you lovingly confront. And when you are wrong, the biblical principle is you don't just go and start a new church. But you apologize. That we live in humility, knowing that there is something bigger and better than just living for ourselves. But what's interesting here is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now there's a little bit of debate about who the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are. Some people think that that is a reference to fallen angels. Some people think that that's a reference to unfallen angels. And I don't, once again, I don't know if we necessarily need to get into that debate as much as what the point here is, is that we are trophies of God's grace. Whether they're fallen angels or unfallen angels, God is showing when the church is gathered together and we're living out biblical principles and we're encouraging each other and we're all growing in God's grace like He has designed for us to do. God's showing us off. We are the reward for His suffering and we are the trophies of His grace. Now what is a trophy there for? A trophy is not there for its own glory, right? 
When you hang a trophy on your mantelpiece, you're not like, man, that trophy, it's just beautiful in and of itself, and it doesn't matter if I earned it or not. No, you hang that trophy up because you worked hard, and it's showing off your accomplishments. We are not trophies for our own glory. We show off God's accomplishment on the cross. And when our hearts are changed, it shows off what God can do. He can take someone like Paul who's killing Christians and he turns him into someone who's willing to die for Christ. You are a trophy of God's grace and he's putting you on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Basically what he's saying is that this was the plan all along. This was the plan all along that that he was going to create a body of Christ and that he was going to grow us and mature us and that he was going to put us on display to show off his grace and his glory in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So uh, he's, this was the plan all along that He would build up a body of Christ, that we would be found in Christ. And when we're found in Christ, we can have boldness and access with confidence. You don't need a priest. The priest was always the mediator, right? If you wanted to get in touch with God, you had to go through a priest because we were not considered holy. And what he's saying here is when you're in Christ, you're considered holy and you don't need the priest to contact God. You can actually access God yourself. The pastor doesn't have a special line. But you can actually access God and not just access Him, but access Him with boldness and confidence. You can come before God with boldness, knowing that He loves you, knowing that He hears you, and with confidence, knowing that He has made you righteous. You don't have to come with shame, groveling, because He has made you righteous, because He has made you holy. So you can have boldness and you can have confidence. And then He finishes with some encouragement. So he's got these four sentences. And the first one, if you remember, he's introducing this prayer, but, but because he's not wanting to shame them, saying, hey, I'm a prisoner on your behalf, he goes into this whole idea of what the mystery is. And then he explains how God is, is taking this mystery to the world. And then he ends it with, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That's a pretty crazy statement there. So I ask you not to lose heart. So so you know that I'm suffering, and you know that I'm suffering because I preach the gospel to you. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel horrible about yourself. Essentially what he's saying here is, it was worth it. I'd do it all over again. And you look back through Paul's ministry, and you see continually beaten. One time they stoned him and left him for dead. And as he's traveling to Jerusalem, he's warned over and over again, you're going to be put in change, you're going to be put in change. And what happens when he gets to the temple? He's arrested. They drag him out. They start a riot. They turn him over to the Romans. He's shipped off to Rome. And he waits in Rome in chains, imprisoned. 
And what he's saying is, I do it all over again. It was worth it. What are you living for? Is it worth it? Would you look back at your life and say, I'd do it all over again because God's grace is so much greater. I've realized that I'm a trophy of His grace and when I am faithful and obedient to the assignment He has put in my life, there's nothing greater. Now God has called some of us to be missionaries and trash dumps. God has called some of us to leave our country and go somewhere else. But God hasn't called all of us to that. Jen and I, when we felt the pull to be a senior pastor somewhere, uh, we had a lot of connections in Nebraska. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Nebraska, but it's a very flat land. And we were kind of hoping that God didn't call us there. There was one church in particular. Uh, it was uh, a small city that was known for its meat processing plant, which means it stank, and it was flat. Uh, and we were like, oh God, if you call us there, we will be faithful and we will go. And you know what? If God had called us there, we know we would have loved the people. And we're so thankful that we're in Flagstaff. We tell our kids all the time, guys, you live in a postcard. This is amazing. Never take for granted where we live. And we love it here. But the reason why we're here is because God has called us to this congregation. And we love this congregation. He could have called us to Detroit. We would have loved it there. There are numerous stories about missionaries who are serving in trash dumps, literal trash dumps, because that is a place in some of the most impoverished countries, that is a place where kids go to live. And they scrounge up pieces of trash. And these missionaries have gone there, not because it's beautiful, but because the love of Christ and the gospel compels them. So some of us get those assignments. Others have the assignment to stay here. Either way, we are called to be faithful to the assignment God has given us. For 2,000 years of church history, God has used people like you to be stewards of the gospel of God's grace. And it is because of people just like you who were faithful to the stewardship of the gospel of God's grace that one day you were able to hear the gospel and believe and your heart could be changed. Now it's your turn. It's your turn to be faithful to the assignment God has for you. To be faithful to the gospel of God's grace so that the next generation and the next generation have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Dear Lord, we thank you so much. For 2,000 years of church history, you have raised up men and women to be faithful to incredibly difficult assignments and even certain death. 
And yet, they knew that that was way more important than present comforts. And it is because of them and how you changed their heart that we get an opportunity now to hear your gospel and have our hearts changed. And we pray that you would help us to be good stewards of your gospel, that we would bring it to the next generation who would continue to bring it forth. And all of this to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.